today on CityCast Pittsburgh. Growing up, I heard a lot of stories about a lot of scary things, probably because half my family were in the nursing industry. Years ago, way before COVID, there was one presence that used to loom really large, polio. And of course, I didn't know it at the time, but it wasn't a thing anymore thanks to the work and legacy of people here in Pittsburgh. It's Monday, July 10th. I'm Megan Harris, and here's what Pittsburgh's talking about. So there's a new exhibit on Pitt's campus in Oakland. It's free to check out, and it's got a bunch of relics from back when the polio vaccine was first developed here in town. I'm with Maria Carter, a producer here at CityCast, who's been doing some research on it for us. Hey, Maria. Hey there, Megan. I know you have sort of a soft spot for infectious disease stories. Do you have any experience with this one, with polio? Luckily, no experience. Good. <laughs> That's what we want. <laughs> I mean, I, I, it would be horrifying if I had personal experience with that. Um, you know, I'm a millennial, so I was really born after wild polio was eradicated in this country. So it's really only something I've ever seen in movies or TV or heard about. Yeah. Like, I'm sure I was vaccinated as a kid against polio, but that's not even something I remember, really. What What about you, Megan? Yeah, I mean, I actually do remember when I got the vaccine, but it was because of my grandmother, um, whose birthday actually would have been this week. Um, she was a public health nurse who worked for decades vaccinating folks and helping with family planning in really rural areas. So I heard a lot about what it was like when she was growing up and kind of got this inspiration to go into this kind of line of work. Um, and then, you know, so when it was my turn as a little kid to get my first vaccinations, at least the first one that I might have remembered, um, she made it special. And she told me, like, this is what you come from and this is why it's important. Um, but we have a Pittsburgh doctor to thank for all that. Lay it out for me. What's Salk's connection to Pittsburgh? So I will tell you what I know from this exhibit. Um, it kind of celebrates Dr. Jonas Salk and his connection to the University of Pittsburgh and to the city at large. I went to the very first press opening, um, and it really drove home how scary polio was at the time. Um, this is Dr. Donald Burke. He used to be the dean of Pitt's School of Public Health, um, and he shared you know, his own personal experience with this. I was a, uh, a six-year-old in 1952 when that polio epidemic with 58,000 kids with paralysis and death. Uh, and down the street from me, Billy, my friend, got polio. Uh, and uh, he lived uh, across the, 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 the street from a pond. Uh, and everybody in the neighborhood called it the polio pond because they thought that's where Billy got infected. He probably didn't. He probably got it through some other source. But... But we were not, that was on my way to school, and I wasn't allowed to walk past polio uh, because it was a, a threat. And everybody felt that way. For parents, it was a nightmare. This could your kid be the next kid to get paralysis from polio? And so that's part of the reason that the community all rallied together, because everybody was really petrified. It was a parent's worst nightmare. Uh, and it was solved by Jonas Salk, the team here at Pitt, and the Pittsburgh community pulling together. Yeah, that that sounds so frightening. Like it, it like polio would just kind of pop up out of seemingly nowhere, right? 
Yeah. I mean, just thinking about this now as a mother, like it is a miracle that a child can be born healthy and safe. And I I would be terrified to let my baby outside. It's amazing what we have to be thankful for. And we have so much to be thankful to Dr. Salk for, right? Yeah. um, The exhibit went over kind of like the development process. Um, I mean, I guess this is obvious to anybody who's in this industry, but it was new to me um, that it took seven years of his life to get it from, you know, this very like early stage to development in a way that, you know, the broader community could benefit from it. I know a lot about the polio virus itself, but I don't really know about kind of how he went about doing all that research and developing the vaccine. Yeah, so these are the broad strokes. Um, but Salk got hired by Pitt in 1947 um, to start working on developing this vaccine. Um, in 1949, the polio virus was first cultivated in human tissue in Boston Children's Hospital. So Dr. Salk and his lab got that virus, killed it, and then created a vaccine in 1952. Um, I believe he vaccinated himself and his children first in 1953. A year later, he did a wider study. And And by 1955, it was going out more widely um, and considered gone in the United States by 1979. Um, Of course, until 2022, when it was found in New York State's sewer water. Tell me more about the polio virus itself, because I don't I'm still a little murky about exactly how it worked. Yeah. So, like, let's talk about first how it spreads. Um, It's it's in the digestive tract. Right. So that is already new information. Yeah. Right. I mean, like this is how distant I think the polio virus is to most people It's in your throat and intestines. And so knowing that uh, you might guess that it kind of spreads through feces and saliva. So a lot of how it would spread is through contaminated water and food. So like the pond might have been a way it spread like legitimately. Oh, wow. Yeah. Or the kid could have just like, you know, sipped a glass that someone else had and, you know, had it that way. Um, Less commonly, it could be airborne, too. Um, So if someone coughed or sneezed, And it was really often spread among, like, young kids. Like, kids under five are at the greatest risk. Um, And anyone who's not vaccinated should go without saying, (laughs) you know. Yeah, yeah. In the modern era, for sure. Um, And I know that paralysis is among the most obvious symptoms, but how else does it affect people? So, first of all, I think one of the most surprising things to me when I was getting a little bit deeper into that was... um, a lot of people that get polio don't show symptoms. Oh. Something like 75% of people don't show any symptoms of polio. Well, and so for folks who do show symptoms, what what does it usually look like? So for most people, you know, that other quarter of people who do get sick, it's like the flu. They get a headache. They get a fever, sore throat, muscle pain, nausea. Um, it lasts for a few days, maybe five, six on the log end. Um, and then it clears up much like the flu. And so it's actually really rare to get the muscle weakness, the paralysis, the, the that effect. It's about one in 200 cases that have a paralytic form of polio. I mean, that's a lot less than I thought. It's still not really a roll of the dice I would personally feel comfortable with. It's but it's so devastating, right? Like, you know, to 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 have that paralysis. And then mm-hmm. from those people that do have, you know, some of those paralysis symptoms, about up to 10 percent would go on 
to die, you know, and that's especially before the iron lung, because the paralysis couldn't, you know, include the diaphragm and those other muscles that help breathing. That's what I think really got to a lot of folks is it was young kids that were losing their lives a lot of times because of polio or suffering lifelong consequences because of it. Yeah, they had an actual iron lung, like the full machine at the exhibit. Um, And I didn't realize until some folks were talking around it that there are still people alive today who are living in iron lungs. Yeah, it was life-saving medicine back then for um, people that, you know, had that most severe form of polio. The show today is brought to you by an incredible local resource, AIDS Free Pittsburgh, and their pledge to end the HIV-AIDS epidemic in Allegheny County by 2030. If that is a cause that is close to your heart, make sure you're around for their biggest event of the summer, the sixth annual Too Hot for July. It is a party, but it is also a chance to get confidential HIV and STI testing for free, plus info on the incredible preventative medicines we have now to keep yins happy, healthy, and feeling your most confident out on the town. So come on out to Allegheny Commons East Park on Thursday, May 30th. Yes, July is in the name, but the event is in May. Don't get confused. May 30th from 4 to 10 p.m. There will be DJ sets, a health fair and marketplace, a ballroom-inspired dance battle, cash bar, food trucks, and more. Plus, a performance by Tony Award winner Alex Newell, a.k.a. Unique, from Glee. This is all thanks to True Tea Pittsburgh and so many folks doing the good work out here in the community. So do not miss out. Learn more at TooHotForJuly.com. So I guess this brings us to Pittsburgh and Dr. Jonas Salk's involvement. So how did he test the vaccine? I think, I mean, usually some of the stuff starts on animals. um, But of course, the story we hear is about his actual children. Yeah. So when I was looking into this, you mentioned his two sons. And I think that's a very common story. And he did test it very early on on his on his own kids. And he first tested it on lab animals like you do. Um, But then, and this was super common at the time, is he tested it on kids in like these two state schools for mentally and physically disabled kids. What? Yeah. Yeah. Like people were doing this kind of crap all the time back then. I did not know that. Yeah. Yeah. It was such a common practice. It's so unfortunate. Like, I think luckily we have a, a place a lot more medical ethics and practices and standards that prevent this sort of thing these days. But like that was seen as good medicine, I think, back in the day. Wow. Yeah. I mean, you know, and now I mean, and his sons have been the ones carrying on their dad's legacy, I guess, for a really long time. Um, and Dr. Peter Salk, um, one of his boys, is actually a part time professor in Pitt's Department of Infectious Diseases and Microbiology. Um, so there's still a Dr. Salk on campus all these years later. Um, he and his brother donated a lot of the artifacts to what is now this Pitt exhibit. Um, and he talked about those days back when dad was still in that development phase. 
I was nine years old at the time. This was in the, in the spring of 1953, and my father, we lived in Wexford at that point, and my father brought home the uh, vaccine to administer to his family. Um, it, one could look at it in different ways. This was just before, this was after the very earliest of the, of the studies had been done at the, at the Watson home and at the Polk State School, and now was the time to expand out into a larger population of school children. So it was at that transition moment, I think my father wanted, number one, to demonstrate his own confidence in the vaccine by immunizing his own family. But I think probably underlying all of that was, we've seen enough, we know this vaccine is going to work. So did people other than Dr. Salk's family here in Pittsburgh have any kind of, I don't know, early access just because he was nearby doing this research? Yeah. Luckily for Pittsburgh uh, and Pittsburgh kids, yes. And so uh, first uh, they sent out in 1954 letters at more than 40 schools to parents um, and they were signed by Salk and they were explaining that the, what the study was, inviting to them to sign up their kids. And about I think it was something like more than 7,500 local kids signed up for this. Um, so, you know, those kids were vaccinated and, you know, Got got that. You know, he went to Arsenal Elementary School and was like giving out vaccines there himself. And there are like photos, I think, I forget it, maybe Life magazine. There are photos there of him doing that. So, you know, it it was an event at the time. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, Well, I assume that this wider distribution, um, you know, first in Pittsburgh and then beyond, clearly it went well. Yeah. So, from Pittsburgh, then it went to more than a million children nationwide. And so it was kind of this interesting thing. Um, you know, they wanted to do this big study. I think it was like 400 some thousand kids actually got the vaccine, 200 some thousand got a placebo, and then about another million some uh, were just observed <laughs> uh, as part of the study. Um, and it proved very safe and effective. And so, like in April of 1955, they were able to make the big announcement, polio vaccine. Yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, by 79, um, which is still a long time, like that's 24 years, um, they say that it's fully eradicated in the United States. Um, but that's there's a lot of in-between time there. What was the local and you know even national response to the vaccine at the time that it was, you know, gaining steam and, you know, more and more people were getting it? People were over the moon. <laughs> Literally, it was like the moon landing. Really? Yeah. Yeah. You know, the headlines, lots of exclamation point if we were old-timey radio right now, polio routed, Salk's vaccine works, you know, <laughs> like <laughs> um, and there were reports of businesses closing, people celebrating in the streets. Like this was just unbelievably good news for people because it was such a horrible disease. I've seen the picture of him getting a congressional medal. So, I mean, I, you know, and obviously it went well. We, we now know it went well. Yeah. He was such a superstar at the time. Like he was really like one of the people walking on the moon. It was Salk. OK, so the press loved him. Does that mean that people, you know, actually eventually got the vaccine or got their kids vaccinated? Yeah, there was a lot of excitement um, for people to go out and get it. I saw a statistic that 100 million doses had been distributed by 1957. You know, so like it, people were getting it pretty rapidly. Did the government participate at all? Like, I mean, of course, they like our government gave us COVID tests later and some free vaccine initially. But, you know, now like... 
you know, with big pharma and other things like a COVID anything these days costs like quite a bit of money. Um, how did it work back in those days? Yeah, you would think the government might be really excited to get in on this, but um it was President Dwight Eisenhower at the time, and the Cold War had just really gotten rolling. Oh, that's right. And he had the fear of socialized medicine. So even though, like, schools had been a really effective place to, like, do the trials and stuff and make a lot of sense, right? Because kids are there. Families, even with younger kids, might have older kids in schools. It's a centralized place. It's a community gathering spot. Um he didn't want the government involved. He didn't want schools involved. So it was really left up for drug companies to figure it out. There weren't regulations really put in place. And that led to some kind of bad effects. Like what? The most heartbreaking one is like not all the drug makers had great safety standards. So this one company um, in particular, it left some of the live virus in. <gasps> yeah. And so, um, you know, it had distributed probably thousands, hundreds of thousands of doses. 260 kids ended up getting like paralytic polio, 11 deaths out of that. Um, you know, and that was very early on in this. Oh, my God. It, yeah, it was just a re really terrible example. It led to more regulations. Um, one of the interesting things that happened was his rival was working on a different type of vaccine. It's the oral polio vaccine where they put it on a sugar cube. And I've seen pictures of that. Yeah. So that came out. That wasn't salt. That was his like bitter rival. Oh, that's they hated funny. each other. He was in Cincinnati, like just down the river. And like, yeah. And so he uh, developed the oral polio vaccine in 61. And so like that kind of became the go to at that point, which really got like, I think, the the hesitant people to take the polio vaccine. Yeah. Well, and, you know, Pitt still has a huge role to play with infectious disease research. They worked on COVID. Um, they work on HIV, all kinds of uh, diseases that are affecting folks all over the world. Um, and it's probably been no small thing to hang their hat over the years on this world-changing development like a polio vaccine. Yeah. Who wouldn't want to say you like work, you know, you have the Salk professorship or something mm -hmm. or yeah. the Salk lab, um, you know, and I think, you know, one of the things I mentioned earlier, it's a whole team of, you know, people oh, totally. it was behind Salk and, you know, that there are whole teams of people at Pitt working on these. No things. product exists in isolation. CityCast Pittsburgh among them. <laughs> Oh, that's right. Maria is always behind the scenes, even when you do not hear her. <laughs> yeah. And of course, like, as you mentioned earlier, the younger Dr. Salk is still there. And he's like, it seems really cool that his dad's stuff is on display, like maybe inspiring those young students and inventors and mm -hmm. caregivers and all those other folks. I can hardly tell you how fulfilling it is for me to see these materials back here in Pittsburgh. My father was an extraordinary human being who accomplished much during his lifetime with the help of so many people. And he serves as an inspiration for the future. And now you can go see those artifacts from the original research and rollout. Um, we'll have links in our show notes for ways that you can check it out. Some news before you go. 
Healthcare workers at the Allegheny County Jail say they're underpaid, understaffed, and overworked. In a new survey from the Pennsylvania Interfaith Impact Network, staff members reported being asked to do things that could threaten their medical licenses and potentially put incarcerated people at greater risk. WESA has a really good breakdown of the exact questions and how folks responded. It was all presented to the Jail Oversight Board last week. And city leaders want to expand Bakery Square, including current businesses, plus a bunch of new apartments and retail. The developers behind the proposal, Walnut Capital, of course, committed a separate $25 million towards rehabbing 100 homes in Larimer. Councilman Reverend Ricky Burgess told WPXI that he hopes the expansion will help rebuild Black communities. That's all for today here on CityCast Pittsburgh. If you're liking the show, please tell someone, rate us, leave us a nice review, and make sure you're subscribed to that Hey Pittsburgh newsletter. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. Bye, Inns. First, this, then goats. (laughs) Sorry. That's what I'll be known for.